1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Winograd. So, For today's episode, I'm going to stop beating one dead horse and go back to a previous horse that I feel like is not quite beaten enough. And so the first dead horse I'm referring to there is dispensationalism and eschatology and things related to Israel. Don't worry, we'll be back onto that subject in some future episodes. And the previous dead horse that we're going to go back to is instead Romans 13 and I don't mean to always be going back and forth between subjects that I have covered on this show previously before, but these subjects are complex and can be approached from multiple angles, sometimes new conversations or new things happen that I think require us to go back and have conversations about it again. And Romans 13 is sort of a commonly cited verse, a bit of a touchstone when we're having conversations about what the Bible teaches about government and, and human authority. And so it is something that we will have to come back to from time to time. And not everyone goes back and listens to the old episodes anyway. So I figure it's good once in a while to have a refresher on what we at LCI, what Christian libertarians or those who would even go as far as I go, as far as claiming to be Christian anarchists, what we do with Romans 13. So I'm throwing a lot out there. And so I'll try to dive into the heart of everything now. Romans 13, if you're not familiar with it by this point, is the passage dealing with submission to governing authorities. And I've done previous episodes on this as I sort of alluded to. And I'll have show notes for this episode, as I always do. And there should be, if I've done my job correctly, links in the description that you can go to to view those previous episodes. And I've done very comprehensive breakdowns of my view of Romans 13. I've even done an episode where I have Greg Baus on the show, and him and I tackle what we view as the Combination of the most common objections that we hear to our view of Romans 13. So I recommend listening to that too. But Romans 13, the part that really matters that is brought up a lot, starting in verse one, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist God's wrath, but also for sake of conscience, there's more to it, and we might get to that later, but we're going to stop at verse five just for sake of time and this is sort of the proof text that people use against a lot of different things, but you know against romans I mean, against libertarian perspectives, coming from a Christian perspective and the answer that I give to people when they ask me, well you know if you're arguing for limited government or even beyond limited government, if you're arguing that we should live in a society where the state is viewed as not necessary or it should be extremely limited or perhaps not even exist at all, if you're saying the state shouldn't have a role to play in different areas of society, well, what would you say to Romans 13? And the answer that I give is that I think that Romans 13 is certainly in support of civil governance. The heart of my answer here is in suggesting that we live in a society and a culture where the state as an entity is basically immediately and sort of like intrinsically tied in our minds, and I think it's sort of a form of indoctrination, we immediately associate governance with the state. And we we have a hard time making a distinction between that. I think it's clear from the Bible, though, that there is a distinction. And I think it would be incorrect to look at, like, let's say, Old Testament Israel in the book of Judges and say that there existed a state. The state doesn't come in until the institution of a king in the monarchy. That's when power becomes centralized. That is when a monopoly of force in a specific geographic area is established. It would also be wrong to say that the Book of Judges was a period of time in Israel in which there was zero governance. I mean, As the name suggests, there were judges. And so what libertarians or what those who would use the word anarchist in the way that I use it, What we are getting at is the idea of a polycentric legal order. What we mean is we just reject the initiation of violence to create a monopoly over civil governance. And rather, we think that, not saying judges is a perfect roadmap, although there are good things that happened in that time period. I think we often look at the book of Judges and we focus on the bad parts of it. But if we go and we look at that time period, the totality of the time that's documented, although it's not, I guess, an exact science or broken down exactly, but we're talking about a period of approximately, I think, 300 years or something close to that. And in that time period, you can go and look. There's different theories, and and I'm not going to try to make a objective case here for exactly how long it is. But like, even if we were going to, I don't know, be pessimistic in our our estimates, there are long stretches of time. You know, sometimes people have estimated like 30 years at certain points and 80 years or 100 years at certain points where there's basically relative peace. And, you know, I would say like a spontaneous order, right, that exists in the land of Israel. It's not like it was just nonstop warring tribes 24-7 during that time period. And so you can describe that as a sort of like libertarian anarchistic theocracy in a way, although they did submit to a common religious order and God was supposed to be the ruler. There was no state that was instituting and dictating for all people at all time, a a sort of like common governance structure in terms of dealing with civil crimes that was handled in a decentralized fashion. And so this is important context when we're reading a passage like Romans 13, because when people read that passage and they say, let's be subject to the governing authorities, well, right away we have to define what we're talking about by governing authorities. And I think that we just need to keep in mind that although it's possible that Paul is talking about the state, we should at least concede the fact that it's not necessary that governing authorities be conceived as a centralization or monopoly of coercion, that which is how I would define the state. The idea of being subject to governing authorities would be just as legitimate in a sort of decentralized society as is described in the book of judges in truth there are more than one type of governing authorities even beyond we can say there's even governance that exists beyond the civil sphere i do think and i've mentioned this before that romans 13 is speaking about the civil sphere so i'm not gonna make too much of an argument otherwise although some try to construe it for being about religious authorities the key here is that Is verse three. And this is where we find basically all the contention of this passage is in verse three. And in verse three, it says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. See, what I read here is that the governing authorities that are being described here are not a terror to good works, but rather to evil conduct. And we're told that we have nothing to fear from governing authorities if we do what is right. Well, right away then, what I would conclude, I got this a lot from having conversations with Gregory Baus and diving into sort of like neo-Calvinist, Dutch-Calvinist Dutch perspective, and but this is also, as we went over my episode with Greg, this is also an interpretation that has roots in even historic Christianity going back to early church fathers who espoused a similar view is that Romans 13 here is not a description of the state. Rather, what I would say is that we're seeing a description of what righteous governing authority looks like. And then therefore we conclude that if there is an authority that is not bound by what this text says, if it, you know, instead of being a terror, To evil conduct, it becomes a tear to good conduct. Well, then it's hard to justify that on the basis of Romans 13. So, like, put it this way if the argument is that you need to submit to a governing authority because of Romans 13, we read in Romans 13 that you have nothing to fear from governing authority if you do what is right. And by doing what is right, I think we should always, as Christians, assume that we're talking about what is right in the eyes of God. Well, if at any point we see an entity be a terror to someone who is doing what is right or at the very least not doing something wrong, well, then it's hard to say that that can be reconciled with what Romans 13 says when it clearly says the opposite, that these rulers, these authorities are not a terror to those who do good works. I would then go and push even further than that and say not only just empirically do we see that States are just routinely terrorizing good people. And so therefore, just by the fruits of what they do are things that Romans 13 would actually condemn or, or reject. But I think the state is by its fundamental nature is an initiation of, of coercion, right? And so the state is sort of like just fundamentally in opposition to how I would read Romans 13 here. Now. There are other perspectives on Romans 13 besides mine, and even other perspectives than mine that exist within the sort of like Christian libertarian or Christian anarchist tradition. I've talked about an opposing view of mine on the show before that is held by many people, although a person who I have talked about before on the show and had many interactions with is Stephen Rose of the Anarcho-Christian Podcast. I do have to give Stephen a lot of credit. He was sort of a pioneer in the Christian anarchist space and and the, the podcast space and his website and his presence on social media has helped many people, including myself, when they are sort of beginning their journey into diving into politics and from this Christian perspective and feeling this conviction that there's something wrong with the state and trying to figure out what the Bible has to say about these things. And to, I would never construe Stephen as anything but a brother in Christ and a brother in advocating for liberty and for God's kingdom, which is, you know, all the things that I like to do on my, my podcast, things that we do here at LCI. And so this is a disagreement among brothers is how I view it. And I, I know Stephen would agree with that. But this little like conflict between our different views though comes up a lot because people will tag both of us on social media when people are asking, you know, like, hey, I have I like a lot of what libertarians say, but I don't know what to do about Romans thirteen. And so Stephen made a post recently again, kind of like re-explaining his view again. And so uh, I want to read his post and and read some of the interactions we had, and this will get into really the meat and potato, the one I wanted to talk about here. And so like the first 15 minutes here or so has been kind of review. And so I apologize if you've heard a lot of that before. And I also apologize if you haven't. And so if you've heard this before, I tried to rush through it. And if you haven't, what I gave you was a very rough summary. I would encourage you to go watch the other episodes for, a, for, 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 eat, for more meat and potatoes or more comprehensive explanation. So Stephen's post then says, this is the heart of the tension in Romans 13 quote, for he is God's servant for your good, verse four. And I agree, I even said that, like that's one of the key parts here. This is Stephen again. How are, quote, all governing authorities, unquote, including the pharaohs and Nebuchadnezzar in our times and lives, not just the ones we like, quote, for our good? The answer is found in this line from Psalm 119. It's found in our cries to God, thanking him for his faithfulness in our darkest hours. It's found in the growth of the church under persecution. It's found in our faith. Now, Psalm 119, 71 is what he's quoting. And he he doesn't really spell it out in the post here because it's a picture. The verse reads, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. So he's saying the answer is found in Psalm 119. And he's saying our good is not in stable nations and political power. Our good is in our faith in God. Our good is in throwing off our dependence in anything other than God. Our good is abandoning our faith in kings, national leaders, or politicians. Our good is our hope and faith in God alone. So how... Are bad leaders, quote, for our good? Well, when bad leaders make us lose faith in man's machinations and turn to God as our only hope, that is how they are for our good. So I really like that. And I want to make this clear because it's hard for this to sometimes get this across on social media platforms because it's like we can't read tone and we're often... Kind of just cutting to the chase of where we disagree and just for the sake of time, because typing takes a while. And I try to not spend as much time arguing on social media as I did when I was a little bit younger. And again, I said try, doesn't mean I always succeed. I agree with the sentiment here. My main problem is attaching it to Romans 13. If I take out the fact of like he's talking about Romans 13, then everything he said there is really good. Like that is true right? Like the failures of the authority structures of man, the failures of central planning, the failures of human society and human authority and and human ingenuity and human creation and human intelligence, the failure of all of these things, the failure of human power and stuff, the failure of these things to do good (laughs) are further proof of the fact that we, as a people, we, as humanity, are fallen and in need of a savior. And so, man's kingdoms should, if properly examined, point us to the possibility, and when we look into Revelation, the then promise in the existence of a perfect kingdom with a perfect king and a perfect savior, and all of those are things that we can put our faith in. And so, amen to that part of what Stephen's saying. And I affirm that. I think that is definitely a truth that we can take from Psalm 119. I think that's closer to what's being described in, I think it's, I always forget if it's 1st or 2nd Peter, chapter 13, where it talks about honoring the emperor. And there's also another passage where it talks about trying to live quiet lives and have ruling authorities leave us alone, which again, like all that, I agree. Where I disagree with him is that I don't think that this truth about the Christian walk is the primary thing being spoken of here in Romans 13. It's in the background, I think, for sure. It's like a secondary conclusion. I mean, it's sort of like when we're reading any text in scripture, there's going to be what the text says on the surface, and I think we should always start there. And then we can kind of say, okay, like what are what are some things that, how this text interacts and correlates with other texts? What secondary conclusions can we make or build upon with what is being made here? To say this another way, I think we would all just sort of intuitively know that it's wrong to reduce any text of scripture to like, well, this just says this just one narrow thing. Like there's usually such depth to scripture even books and passages where we think that we've heard it before and we know everything when you you go and read them and study them again or maybe not by yourself but with others or in certain commentaries or teachings and there's always ways to find more than what you found the first time it's hard to find the bottom so to speak of a lot of these passages because they just touch on so many things and there's so many secondary and third and fourth and so on conclusions that we can make. So I'm going to read our conversation and, and I think this will help demonstrate what I'm trying to say. And again, I'm, I'm doing this less so to like not trying to win an argument because I, I think at the end of the day where Steven and I end up is in a disagreement, but one that I think highlights a crucial truth. And hopefully this makes sense by the time I'm done. So I commented on his post. I said, I don't think this works. I agree with your conclusion as an essential Christian truth, but I think the interpretation of Romans 13 here doesn't hold. In verse 3, it says, if you do what is good, you will receive approval from the one in authority, or some translated as praise of the same. It doesn't say that if you do what is good, you will receive praise from God, or that the persecution you receive will be good for you. Rather, it plainly says, if you do not want to fear the authorities, do what is good and you will obtain their approval. So let me just make this clear. This is what I was objecting to. In Stephen's post, he's saying, well, when Romans 13 and verse 4 says that the governing authorities are for your good, he's God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, does not bear the sword in vain. To me, that doesn't hold to say what Paul is saying here that, you know, like in Psalm 119, it's good for me to be afflicted, so I might learn your decrees. But that's not what he's really saying in the prior verse. Because in verse three, he says that the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Then he he's like answering a question. What he says is, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? He's not saying, would you like to understand why, when the authority structures persecute you or you are afflicted by them, why it is good, (laughs) right? He's saying, would you want to have no fear? And the answer is to do what is good and not to do what is good so that you are persecuted for your good, but rather so that you receive the approval. So, like the it's saying, the clear reading here, I think when you were starting in verse one, reading the whole way through, we're not seeing a painting of, of authority here in a negative light. It's not saying, like, oh man, the state is evil, but take heart and submit and turn the other cheek and take the affliction as being something that God's working for your good. It's saying, rather, do what is good and you will have nothing to fear. And Do what is good and you will actually obtain the approval of those in authority. So to go back to what I said here on this post, I said, I think your interpretation just reinvents or ignores the actual context there in verse 3. I think you're reading something into the text that isn't there. I agree with your assessment that in general, God uses all things, including persecution for our good. We learn of this through other scriptures, but Romans 13 clearly says... Is that the authorities are good, and that if you do what is good, you'll obtain their approval. And then I say that the only interpretation that makes sense in light of this is the prescriptive one uh, that Greg Bouse and I have shared and argued for. The authorities of Romans 13 are just and righteous authorities. And we see that verse three and the rest of the beginning of the chapter is prescripted of what a just civil authority looks like. They are not a tear to good works, but instead wield the sword against evil in the context of a civil authority, which is clearly talking about a civil authority and the fact that we know that the Mosaic covenant and law uh, have been fulfilled. And so we're no longer in this sort of like eschatological intrusion or in this covenant of works anymore, but we're back to sort of like the common law order. And so there is no more theocratic covenant of Israel that even then was just applied just to them. But no, we're, we're talking about civil authorities. And so they are to deal with civil evil. And so this is why theonomists are wrong. So it's clearly about civil evil. So aggression and force, violations of property rights, not all sin, broadly speaking. So this means, on this view, that the state is not a righteous authority, but instead an unrighteous one. And we have other scripture to back that up such as 1 Samuel 8, where it says the state authorities on idolatrous on top of evil. Stephen's response, he says, the context of you doing good is set in the verses about being peaceful to the ones in authority, Romans 12 and 13, even when they are persecuting you. My response was, you're saying Paul is simultaneously saying, do good to those who persecute you, even the state and if you do good, the state will not persecute you and will approve of you. And if you do good, when the state persecutes you, it's for your good. I was like, you don't see a conflict here. It's like you're saying three things at once. And again, you're saying Romans 13 is clearly stating these things, not as if we can't learn them elsewhere in scripture. He said, no, he brought some verses up. Psalm 119 again Genesis 50, verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended all for good. Second Chronicles 12, 8, nevertheless, they will become his servants so that they may learn the differences between serving me and serving the kings of other lands. I said then, but Stephen, that's what those verses are saying. You haven't shown me what Romans 13 says. Romans 13 doesn't say the state will persecute you and God will use it for good. Therefore, submit. It says, do what is good and you will gain the approval of the person in authority. Skip ahead here because there was just like Stephen and I kind of going back and forth, just kind of not communicating clearly what's happened to social media. So I'm not going to read all that. So I got to a point where I, I reemphasize. I say, what is verse three saying? I said, specifically when it says you will receive their approval. But again, what I'm getting at here is like, I don't see how you can say based on that line, that what Paul is primarily saying here, what the clear reading of that text is, is that somehow we get, like, you will receive their approval, but the post was, the state's going to persecute you, but God's going to use it for your good. I'm like, well, those are two different claims. I don't see where in Romans 13 we're getting anything that says, the state's going to persecute you, but God will use it for your good. Which, again, I can agree with that. I'm just, I don't see that in Romans 13 specifically. I see that in the other verses he's bringing up but it's like we have to be careful to not like say well because this verse says this then this verse also says this they might be tangentially related but they're not the same these are different claims so then Stephen said answering my question of what does it mean you will receive their approval in most cases it's to be left alone he quotes first timothy 2 i urge that requests prayers intercession and thanksgiving be made in behalf of all people for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Okay, I was like, yeah, well, that says what Stephen is saying. That does say to be left alone. And I guess you could say that's kind of a sort of approval. So, okay, that's a better argument than he had made up until this point. My response then was, so you are saying that Paul is telling us simultaneously that the state will persecute us and use it for our good, so submit, and that if we do good, the state will leave us alone? That's my problem. Is like If you're trying to say that Paul is saying both at the same time, it doesn't quite work. Like It can, but it's a little difficult. He said that it's true. He said, don't forget these men went peacefully to their graves at the hands of the state and praise God for their thorns and persecutions. i was like, that's true. And I'm not, and so I'm not trying to obscure anything. And I said, to me, it seems like these two claims are intention and possibly contradict. I said, by this view, you are pushing almost two different goods being pursued or encouraged. One is to do good in the eyes of God and trust that whatever the consequences of that obedience, God is for your good. And the other is that in terms of doing what the state says, but only as to get them to leave you alone. Would that be correct? Or do I have it wrong? I only ask because that's the only way I can reconcile what you're saying, because clearly there are many instances where doing what is good is going to incur state persecution, which he even admits in his answer, but he says that persecution is for your good, but he's trying to simultaneously say, but also do good. And that way the state leaves you alone. I'm like, well, you're like saying both things at the same time, like doing good will simultaneously get you persecuted and left alone. And both are good. I was like, you're what I would say that Romans 13 is saying more that do what is good and a just ruler and just civil authority. You won't have any trouble with that. And if you get into trouble for doing what is good, well then you would conclude that is not a just civil authority. And then I would say, okay, but if you're getting persecuted by an unjust civil authority, well, that's where I agree with Stephen that, well, when you're being persecuted for doing what is right, God will use it for your good anyway. That's true. And yet we should try to live quiet lives. It's one thing to get in trouble for doing what's right. Another thing to kind of like be loud and, and almost like antagonistic in a way that's like, there are some libertarians and anarchists who, who would be kind of like that. And I'm not even against like a, a protest, so to speak, but then there's people that would like be going a little bit beyond like civil disobedience or civil protest and, and be going into disturbing the peace, I guess, so to speak, or at least like they're not like, even if I wouldn't say like, well, they're wrong necessarily. It's like, it's unwise. Like they're acting in a way that doesn't show good maturity or good wisdom in a way that it's just going to get them in trouble. They're going to get locked up. They're going to be limiting their ability to do good. And if you act in a certain way where you're not exercising good, good wisdom and you're asserting yourself and and disobeying in a way or calling attention to things in a way that raises up a lot of noise and ruckus that just gets you persecuted more, it's like, don't seek out the persecution, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Hopefully that makes sense. I think most people get what I'm getting at. There's a difference between getting in trouble when you're just trying to mind your own business and do the right thing, and the other thing, when you're seeking out the trouble or being reckless in what you're doing. And there's some nuance and gray area there for sure. But yeah, I would say there's good and bad ways of of, uh, going about this. And to get back to what I was saying, I would agree with, again, what Stephen's saying in terms of practicality and an application and that other passages are teaching these principles. But are those the primary principles or teachings that play in Romans 13? And so I said, almost what you would have to be saying is that like, when Paul says, these authorities are for your good, that in his conversation that I've had with him, He's like simultaneously like good is saying two different things like good in terms of being left alone and good as in persecution that's good for you at the same exact time. And I think when you make it that way, you're sort of confusing the text. His response was, often things are given intention like this, righteousness before God and righteousness before man are both there with their nuances and both continually confused, justification, faith versus works or two others. I don't really have a struggle with that here. And I said, well, sure, I'm not objecting to the concept of things being intention in scripture. That is a common theme in scripture. Some things can seem to be intention. I said, I still think the plain reading is the better reading. As always, I agree with you. But I think that those are secondary truths that are extrapolated from other scriptures. And we disagree because you view what I label as secondary, as primary, and exhaustive, or at least that's how it seems to me. That's where we ended things off. So here's what I want to draw from this. In that whole interaction Stephen and I had, I think what we just did is exhaust every good reading of Romans 13, what you didn't see anywhere in our conversation, despite us having a disagreement here, what you didn't find was a plausible way of making the state good. Because if I'm wrong in my interpretation, and and then I think Stephen's interpretation would be the most likely, you know, I would probably reduce it to one and not both. And Stephen wouldn't disagree with me that the state is not a righteous authority, right? So, although we disagree on the exact exegesis of what that text says, what we do agree on and what I hope this interaction demonstrates is that the state is just so far away from something that can be reconciled by this text. And in fact, anytime you make the state the actual subject. When you go back to the beginning of Romans 13 and it says to submit therefore to the governing authorities, the, in the Greek it's the uh, akousia when you make the akousia the state, make the higher powers the state in Romans 13, then the only explanation that doesn't end in contradiction is the idea that they're good for you, but only in that their persecution will be good for you. Which, again, I still think that just like when we read this line by line with like the clear implications of like the words that Paul uses and sort of like the sentence structures, it seems to be reaching, in my opinion, to say that the primary point Paul is making here is the persecution, right? Like that's a secondary thing. I agree more with kind of what Stephen's other point was that, well, if you do good, you'll be left alone. And so, I would say, like, in general, if we're, you know, you reap what you sow, so, like, it would be mostly true to say that, like, if you're doing what is good in the eyes of God, that I think in a lot of cases, God will protect you, right? God will preserve you. If you end up in trouble with the state, then like he often did in the Bible. He did, he did rescue many of God's people, those who feared God and obeyed him. He would rescue them from tyrants and from unjust persecution by authorities. But then there's plenty of instances where he doesn't, where people were martyred. But at the end of the day, all paths lead to Rome. All these interpretations still end up with that there is a fundamental defect in this apparatus that we call the state. We see that in, in the Bible. We see that when we try to logically deduce it and break it down. What some people try to do, what a common interpretation of Romans 13 is, is people would agree with me that it's about government. They would then go as far as to say, well, government has to be in the state. And they would say the state is good because the state is a minister of God for your good. And if you don't want to fear the state, do what is good and the state will leave you alone and protect you and only go after those who do evil. But again, like even if people don't disagree with me on the libertarian presuppositions about the nature of the state, the anatomy of the state, to quote a Rothbard book, just empirically, it, it's hard to argue against the fact that the state is one of the greatest perpetrators of doing what Romans 13 says not to do, which is, it says that, The governing authorities are not a terror to good works. The state routinely is. In fact, increasingly so in many parts of the world and even here in, in the United States of America. And so at the end of the day, here's what's important. Here's what I want you to draw away from it. Although I disagree on like the micro level with what Stephen said, I just love what he said in his post. And so I'll end by just repeating that again, which is that, we need to also go back to remembering that we are part of a greater kingdom and that our home is not here on earth, right? This is not our home and our good is not going to come from the state. Our good will come from God. As Stephen put it, our good is not in stable nations and political power. Our good is in our faith in God. Our good is in throwing off our dependence in anything other than God. Our good is in abandoning our faith in kings, abandoning our faith in national leaders or politicians. Our good is our hope and faith in God alone. And so amen to that. And then when he says, so how are bad leaders for our good? Bad leaders make us lose faith in man's machinations and turn to God as our only hope. And I might not agree with exactly how Stephen gets to saying this from Romans 13, but again, I 100% agree with that conclusion as being a truth that we derive from the entirety of scripture. When we watch what the nation of Israel went through, right, in the book of Judges, as I said at the beginning, they had periods of peace, right? And then they had periods where there was conflict, it wasn't perfect. And no libertarian or anarchist says that the absence of a state is a utopia where violence and conflicts never happen. But how did the state make anything better? How did the monarchy make anything better over the the history of the nation of Israel? Even a nation where God instituted, reluctantly with a warning, instituted a state, instituted a king, and even gave them a king who he said was a man who was after his own heart it still did not end up for the good of the people other than the fact that the nation of Israel brought about the Christ and that God, using the clumsy, feeble attempts of man, God's sovereignty over all of that can be used by him to bring about his providential plans, which are for our good. And so if you get any point in this next year, this is an election year, and I'm probably going to, this is what I'm going to close on. As we get closer and closer to November and election season really ramps up, you're going to hear a lot of things, Christian. You're going to hear a lot of rhetoric about how the other side is bad, about how this is the most important election of our lifetime, and that if X person gets into office, that it's going to be like the end of the country or the end of civilized society, it's going to lead to the persecution, it's going to lead to war, it's going to be lead to all sorts of bad things. And that's why you need to go to the ballots booth in November and cast your vote for, for this guy so that the other guy doesn't get into office and just once again, you just got to support that you've got problems with that, with that candidate that I'm asking you to vote for, you know, it's the lesser of two evils and that's what you have to do. Does that sound like we're putting our faith in God if we're buying into that? This is coercive propaganda tactics by people in, the ruling establishments of our society, who are absolutely not for our good. God might use them for our good from, from time to time, but they don't exist for our good. They exist for for their own selfish machinations and their own preservation of power. And so, don't buy into the fear mongering. Don't buy into the same. This is the most important election of our lifetime. Don't buy into that. Put your faith in the only kingdom that can provide salvation and the only person who can save Jesus Christ, man who was God in flesh. That is the hope that we have. That is the gospel message. That is the good news. And that is what I'm going to leave you on. Thank you for listening.
0: And we'll be talking to you again next week. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, Please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.